The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. So welcome, everybody, today to our segment. We're going to be talking about a lot of different things, but uh, in particular, the financial aid family, understanding how divorce and remarriage can affect financial aid. That's something that's particularly close to my own heart as I am divorced and remarried, and we're experiencing this in our own home. So lots of questions around what do you do if your ex doesn't want to be involved in the process? What about your new spouse? Is that person going to be expected to pay tuition for your child from a previous marriage? Um, so we're going to be talking about that today. We're also going to be talking to those of you who maybe are already starting to get acceptances, and you might be wondering about all of those invites you're getting to admitted student receptions. So admissions expert and my colleague, Becky Leitling, was going to stop by, and she's going to talk to us about whether or not to attend and really how to get the most out of your time there if you do. And finally, we're going to be answering your questions on the air at the end of the show, so send them on over to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. But first, I'm really excited to welcome back Ian Fisher, who's a former senior admissions officer at Reed College, who's going to talk to us about social media and admissions. So welcome, Ian. Hi, Beth. How's it going? Okay, pretty good. So it's this time of year, I think, when, well, it's actually kind of a year-round phenomenon, I think, because people are on social media so much these days, especially teenagers. And while many adults make bad decisions on social media, I would say that teenagers make at least as many bad choices as adults do, and sometimes more. Um, and I know that it weighs on a lot of parents this question about, you know, how much of a factor can social admissions be in the admissions process? And so I think my first question for you is, how much do colleges even use social media to investigate students when they're applying? Yeah, I mean, I think probably students make about the same percentage of bad decisions on social media <laughs> as adults. They just use social media way more than adults do. Um, yep. They have a lot of different platforms for it. And so they're really out there in a lot of different ways. And so, you know, I don't think colleges are going out of their way to research applicants or prospective students or to look into candidates. But there are sort of ways, I think, that through sort of accidental overlap or just through sort of being, I don't know, invited to see a student social media page um, that colleges will see what, what students sort of have out there in the Internet. Um, in general, you're just not going to see that colleges are going out there and actively sort of vetting the, um, the students that are applying to their colleges. Right. I mean, I would say when I was at Penn, 
I barely had time to read all of the files in my caseload, let alone spend a lot of time investigating each and every one of them, uh, either through social media channels or really any other channels beyond the application yeah. in front of me. So I would say yeah, that, that, was, that was my experience as well. It's just, you know, you just don't, you don't have enough time in the day to do that. Um, and, and you don't really want to either. I think that you want to sort of have the application be the way that you learn about a student. And, you know, if social media comes up, it does in other ways. But, uh, you know, you don't want to sort of go out and look for information about a student beyond the application. Right. So talk to us about the other ways. And you made mention of maybe being invited to see a su- student's social media platform. And do you mean sort of someone friending you or are you talking about other ways in which you might interact with the student's social media uh, platform when you're reading applications? Yeah, I, I mean, I think as far as friending or sort of actively being engaged with an admission officer as an individual is probably a bad idea. Um, and most admission officers are just going to reject friend requests. Um, but what I'm sort of thinking about is, you know, a lot of students these days are accomplishing things on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. And they're also using social media and other parts of the internet to track their accomplishments. So, you know, if you have a student, for example, who has a really popular YouTube channel that gets, you know, a couple of thousand subscribers and, and tons of views, that might be something that a student might want to talk about on their college application or in their extracurricular activities list. And so what I would do if I were an admission officer and a student says, I have a popular YouTube channel, is, you know, open up my computer and, and check out what that channel is. Mm-hmm. And that becomes sort of, you know, you've opened up a window into who your online persona is to an admission officer because you've sort of invited them to do that. Um, and I, I think that that could be a positive if what you're inviting admission officers to view is something that you're really proud of, uh, you know, an accomplishment that you've had. But I think you also have to be aware of the fact that once an admission officer starts that process of looking at your YouTube channel or your tweets or your blog, you can't control what it is that they look at or what they click at. They have the mm-hmm. entire content list there to peruse. Right. So if you've done something in the past that wasn't, had, didn't have anything to do with college admissions but might be somewhat inappropriate, they may stumble across that while they're looking at this thing that you did specifically maybe for college admissions um, process. And that could be the problem right there. So Yeah, and I, would, I would actually say, you know, a couple of colleges now are, are accepting admissions videos as well mm-hmm. that students can upload and send in as a part of their application. And, you know, if you use the same YouTube channel or login information that you have for your personal account where you're also doing things that are probably a little bit less impressive to colleges, <laughs> you know, to euphemize it in a way, um, they could probably see the link between those two videos. And, and so you always want to make sure that you're only letting admission officers see the stuff you want them to see. Right. So what would be a piece of advice in terms of, uh, controlling that aspect of things. So you may still want to invite someone to see something you've accomplished on social media. How do you make sure that they're only looking at that and not at anything else? Yeah, I think, I think what you want to do is sort of go with a fresh set of eyes. So, you know, if you invite somebody to a YouTube channel or to your blog, you know, just type in the URL like an admission officer would or, or you know, Google your blog through Google and see what the connection is there. Um, you know, just sort of click through it like you are a first-time visitor rather, rather than somebody who owns and operates and maintains that 
that piece of content. And you can kind of see what stuff is going to pop up. And, and you know, admission offices are going to click on things they're interested in, but you sort of want to see what's available to be looked at. Um, one example is that, you know, a lot of blogs these days will allow um, their operators to auto-feed all of their tweets through that blog. And so mm-hmm. you might have a blog that's great, that's professional, that follows, you know, an, an area of academic interest that really looks awesome, but you've also got all your personal tweets being fed through the sidebar there, and those might not be two things that you want to go together. And so you mm-hmm. might, you know, protect your tweets or take that feature off of your blog um, before submitting your application to colleges so that a viewer that comes through over the next few months isn't going to see that same kind of connection. Right. I think that's good. I'm, I always employ or I tell my students, maybe you employ the parent or grandparent rule. If you wouldn't want your parents to see it or you wouldn't want your grandparents to see it, that may be also something you just either don't want to do, A, or yeah. B, you want to take down for a certain period of time while you're going through this process. Um, and that actually kind of brings me to the next question, which is when do you want to start controlling your social media presence? I, I think when you start reaching out to colleges or connecting with them uh, through social media, that's, first of all, you want to sort of make sure that what you are connecting with is sort of above board. So if you're going to start following a college admission office on Twitter, or you're going to join a group on Facebook connected to a college admission office, you want to make sure that your profiles for those different pieces of social media are sort of what you would want a college admission officer to see. You can obviously turn up your privacy settings so they can't see your tweets or come and look at your Facebook page. But I think even then you sort of want to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, you can see a thumbnail. So you don't want a big red solo cup, uh, you know, in your, mm-hmm. in your Facebook picture, even if they can't see the rest of your profile. Um, right. So I would start doing that when you're connecting with colleges through social media. And then I would say, you know, before submitting your application sometime in the fall of your senior year, it's probably a good idea to go through and, and just make sure that your privacy settings are turned up for, for all of your um, social media accounts, including, you know, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Those are sort of the big ones um, where you're kind of out there and people can, can see what you're doing. And then some students will also have their, you know, YouTube and, and blogs and things along those lines. Right. And so you and I talked about this before uh, you came on the show. And one of the things we shared were some funny stories or maybe not so funny stories, actually, truthfully, they're not very funny um, about students who really cause themselves some problems on social media. And so two that I often share with students uh, are a student who was a recruited athlete and who was going on a visit to his first choice school. And it went really well, and he really loved it. And for some reason, he, well, I think because he's a teenager and because he's on social media, he decided to tweet about it. And he used um, some language that wasn't particularly appropriate. And the college saw the tweet because he included the name of the school in the hashtag, and yeah. they called up the college counseling office and politely suggested that he not bother submitting his application because it wasn't going to work out. Um, and then, you know, someone else, a colleague of both of ours shared a story about a student that had been admitted and was, um, tweeting about that acceptance and again, said some not so great things or used some language that wasn't so appropriate. And that admit decision quickly went from an admit to a deny because the college admissions officers were monitoring, um, any tweets that mentioned them. And so they saw it. 
And so I wondered if you have any similar cautionary tales out there. Yeah, I do. And I, I would just, I would underscore that, you know, colleges and college admission officers are just like everybody. They want to see themselves be mentioned in tweets and they want to be talked about. And so they'll go search the hashtag that's connected to their school um, and, and follow up and see what people are saying about them. And so if you do that, you know, don't be surprised if a college admission office sees it and, and, you know, either says, wow, great, this kid has a great thing to say, or if it's not so great, it does less good. Um, right. The story that I have is actually uh, was connected to a student who wrote an essay about a blog. And he said, you know, I started writing this blog and I'm really excited by it. It's just something I challenged myself with. It's making me a better writer. And I thought, oh, this is really cool. Like, I, I want to go check this out and see what this blog is all about. And so I, I searched for it. And when I got there, the blog was just really trivial, sort of juvenile high school stuff. Um, it wasn't particularly well thought out. It was just sort of a collection of, you know, sort of random stream of consciousness thought. Um, and then the tweets were also connected to his, his blog. And when I clicked on those tweets, I saw a lot of stuff that really sort of diminished my opinion of the student. And this was mm-hmm. a student with, you know, top grades and really rigorous coursework and good scores. And so it's somebody who presents through an application as being a really terrific community member and academician. But when you start to see the sort of undeveloped um, side of yep. who that person is, you, 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 you're not as impressed. And, you know, probably every student has a side like that. But I think it's a good lesson to learn that whether you're doing college admissions or you're applying for a job, you've got to be aware of how your online persona sort of rounds out who you are. Right. Does it support what you're saying or does it actually counteract what you're saying? And, of course, we're going for support, uh, certainly in the admissions process. Ian, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I thought that was super helpful. And hopefully those of you listening and wondering about social media presence had some good takeaways from that. Uh, If you're one of the many people who are at the end of the admissions process and you're actually starting to make decisions about where to go to school, you're not going to want to miss our next segment. We're going to be back right after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. 
What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. My colleague, Becky Leitling, who's a former senior admissions officer at Tufts University, is here to talk to us today about student admit receptions. Hi, Becky. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. So back when I applied to college, uh, I remember getting in and then getting these invitations to come back to campus. And I know my parents and I had spent a lot of time and money visiting schools already. And it never even occurred to us that we were going to go back for any of these admitted (laughs) student receptions. So I always find this part of the year, I found it sort of interesting when I was doing admissions, when we invited students to come back. uh, And I always find it interesting now when the students I'm working with are invited to come back and how many families actually do decide to take advantage of that option and um, how many are maybe curious, is it really worth it spending more money to go visit a school yet again and, and why would we do that? So I thought it'd be great if you could come here and talk to us today about that very question. And I think Probably to get us started, my, my first question for you is really, what is the purpose of these, especially if you've already visited? Um, why do colleges hold these uh, receptions, and, and what are students hoping to gain out of them? So from the college's perspective, they've just spent you know, the, the better part of a year building this very intentional class of well-rounded kids from all over the country with tons of different interests and abilities. And now they've admitted them. And then there's, you know, the seniors have been waiting all spring for the answer. And now the colleges just have to sit and wait for the decision. So the point of those April admit days is to yield those kids. You want to make sure that, you know, of all these awesome kids that you've admitted, you want them to show up next fall. So the colleges are going to um, put on their best version of daily life on campus. This campus is going to be dressed to the nines with the banners and the peppy kids and the best desserts in the lunch or in the dining hall, and uh, they want to make students choose to enroll. So from a high school student's perspective, um, if you have built a really thoughtful list in the fall of, you know, five colleges or seven colleges that honestly you like, they all have your major, they're all the right size and setting and culture for you, then hopefully in the spring you're choosing between schools that you already feel really strongly about. And at the end of the day, if there's a clear winner and you know where you want to go, awesome. 
But if now you feel like, well, gosh, I, I really like all these schools equally and they have what I need, then you have the luxury of making a decision based on, well, where are you truly going to feel the most comfortable? Who do you want right. to be as your roommate? Where do you want to spend every day reading on the quad? And so I think that's where the yield reception comes in for seniors is for that last soft part of the decision. What campus just makes you feel like you belong there? Right. And so that actually leads right into my next question, which is absolutely, that's exactly why colleges are inviting them back. And I remember at Penn when we hosted these, one of my jobs was to go and find every student who had uh, RSVP'd who was from my region. So I had read their file, go find them and say hello or try to at any rate, um, which was sometimes difficult. Uh, and that was our way of saying, hey, the ball is back in your court. You get to choose now and we hope you choose us. But um, if I think it, I heard from what you were just saying that really, if you kind of know where you're going, if you are pretty much set on a school, then maybe an admit reception is not particularly useful for you. But that if you are uh, kind of unclear, you really like three options, then going to three different admit receptions might be a really good way to make it a little clearer for yourself. Yeah, and I think in all honesty, I would... I would do as much pre-screening as you can before you sign up for those admit receptions because the chances are they're going to be spread out over the weekend, usually later in the month, and you've got to decide by May 1st. So if you're visiting one school every week, then you're going to be pushing your decision back to the last three days in April, which can be stressful. So I really would think of it not as this awesome party that you get to go to for every school you've been admitted to, and rather... Okay, do as much thoughtful work beforehand, calling those professors, talking to your cousins, friends who went there to narrow down the maybe, you know, two schools, maybe three, and then consider those yield receptions. So if let's just say that you decide that you are going to go to those uh, to a handful of admit receptions, because I agree you can't try and do everything. Uh, what should you do while you're there? So, as much as you can, I would think about uh, before you go, what are you hoping to get out of this? Because you might say, you know what, I really want to understand from another science major how easy it is to buy to balance the lab with my acapella or my varsity sport. So know kind of the pieces of your lived experience in college that you're going to want to talk about and you're going to want to get a handle of. Um, so that when you're there and you've got, you know, six hours on campus, you can proactively find answers to that. Um, I would also think about if you're going with your mom or dad or your sister or whoever, dividing and conquering. Um, you don't both necessarily need to be in the same presentation about study abroad. Maybe mm-hmm. you send mom to study abroad and you go to the, the presentation on living off campus or, you know, whatever is helpful for you so that when you're you know driving home, you guys can um, share notes and, and think about, you know, bigger picture, all parts of life on campus there. Uh, and I would also... You know, I mentioned before that these campuses are going to be dressed to the nines. They're putting their peppiest kids in registration, and they're putting their most successful kids on the speaker's panel. Make sure you get off the beaten path of the admit day for a little bit. Find some kind of off, you know, in the corner coffee shop or somewhere that's not really profiled on campus to find a regular kid who is not involved in the admit day um, program and just talk to them about whatever mm-hmm. it is that you wanted to learn. So they're going to have a little bit more of a neutral perspective, and you're not going to be as hyped up on kind of promoting the best of the best version of the school. 
So what is, I think that's really great advice regardless of almost when you're visiting. So whether you're going for the admit reception or you're going just to visit a school for the first time before you even apply is get off the beaten path whenever you can. And that's great advice for the admit reception in particular because they have so much going on to keep you on the beaten path when you're there that there is uh-huh. real value in kind of getting off of it. So absolutely great advice. What if you can visit another time, but you can't make, because the, the admit receptions often do overlap. They can conflict with one another, and maybe you've already committed to going to one school's admit reception. You really do want to go back to see a different school, but the dates don't work with your schedule. Uh, what do you do then? Beth, that is a great question. I actually you know, was in charge of coordinating our admit receptions when I worked in admissions, and they were some of my favorite days of the year. But I think if you have the opportunity to go visit that college on a non-admit reception day, that's something that you might seriously want to take advantage of. And the reason for that is just that you'll get a better sense of real life. Um, It does put more agency on you. You're going to have to seek out opportunities to interact with students. You're going to have to seek out the chance to sit in on a class or talk with a professor. So you've got to kind of be more in charge of making that day work, but you're going to get the regular professor that you'll have for intro bio rather than the Nobel laureate who also won, you know, best teacher four years in a row that they specifically handpicked to teach the lecture on the admit day. So you mm-hmm. might just get an even more real sense of life on that campus if you're willing to seek it out. Yeah, I think that's also a great idea. It's never, you can always do that. Colleges are always willing to help you plan something, although like you say, you're going to have to do a lot more of it yourself than if you go during an admit reception. And this sort of leads into the next thing because a lot of schools will do things locally in your area. Maybe an alum will host a reception at their home uh, or do something like that. And how do you decide between maybe attending that and going to the school, which may be a bit more of a journey for that bigger event? I think this really is going to depend on the student and what you want to get out of the experience. So if, if you know that you know, you're, you've got these three options and what you really want to understand is the reality of double majoring at these three different schools, chances are an alum reception is going to be a great place for you to figure that out. If you have a specific set of you know, a few questions, why travel across the country and have your mom take a day off of work to figure that out? Um, right. I think if... If the thing that's missing for you between these two or three great schools that all offer the same programs is really that X factor of do I feel comfortable on campus? Do I feel like I fit in? That's really where the admit reception can be particularly helpful because you're going to be surrounded by your future peers um, and, you know, the the campus itself. So if that's where you feel like you need to make the decision, then I think you should as if you can make it, get out to the reception. But if it's really more the nitty-gritty of some specific questions or the program or logistics, take advantage of the alums in your community. I, yeah, I think one of the things, too, that can happen at those alum receptions is sometimes the school will actually have a representative from the university there to answer those questions. So great point. You can get questions answered at those types of receptions, and you can certainly meet maybe the students from your area who have been admitted. But if you Mm -hmm. need to figure out whether that campus is for you, I agree. I think getting back on the campus can be um, an even better bet. Um, But they both have their place. Mm -hmm. Another thing that can be sometimes overwhelming, depending on your personality, when you're on those admit days, 
when you're at the campus for the Accepted Students Day, there's 500 other anxious seniors there, too, with mom mm-hmm. and dad trying not to be embarrassed. They woke up earlier than usual because they had to drive two hours. No one's really at their best, and everyone's trying to see if they fit in. And so there's a mm-hmm. lot of tensions running in different directions, and some kids thrive on that, and some kids just don't want to be there. I know when I got into college, I actually... I applied early decision, and so when the admit day came around, we were all invited as a courtesy, but I was very strongly advised by my older brother, who knew me very well, that I should not go, because if I went, (laughs) I was going to be totally turned off by the anxiety and the stress, and I was going to regret having to go to that school. (laughs) And that's because I was a very anxious senior in college, Mm -hmm. or a senior in Gotcha. So, I think so it's, you know, it's really based on the energy of the campus and whether that's going to be a plus or a minus. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a stressful process, and you would hope that by the time you get in, it becomes less stressful. But I do think for some families <laughs> and for some students, it really ratchets up that, okay, well, now I have to make an actual choice, and totally. what if I get that wrong? And, and that can be very stressful for some people. And like you say, some people will thrive on it. Uh, so, Becky, thank you so much. Uh, to everyone, please stick around. My next segment is really a must-listen for anyone who's part of a modern family that includes divorce or remarriage or step-parents or all of the above and who's going to be applying for financial aid, and which, as I mentioned earlier, includes me. So we'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you are listening to getting in a college coach conversation 
To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. My next guest, Beth Feinberg-Keenan, who's a former senior fi- senior financial aid officer at Northeastern University and currently my colleague at College Coach, has some really great information for anyone who's wondering how to navigate that often tricky world of college finance, especially as far as complications like divorce and remarriage are concerned. Uh, and I know from personal experience uh, that it can be really tricky. So welcome, Beth. Thanks so much, Beth. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Excited to have you here. So I know that um, applying for financial aid in general can be um, confusing for some people. Just there's paperwork you have to fill out. Um, some colleges require not only the FAFSA, but they also want you to fill out their own CSS profile. So there's a lot of different information that they ask for. And it becomes even more complicated when instead of Two adults, maybe you have three because there's a step-parent in the mix, or maybe there are actually four because the parents are divorced and both parents are remarried. Uh, So what I'm hoping today is that we can kind of dig in a little bit into what the expectations are going to be from the college's side of things so that families out there who are facing these same situations can understand what they're going to need to do in order to apply for financial aid or what their options are going to be if, say, someone has decided that they don't really want to be part of that process. Um, so I think the first question I have for you is, uh, are colleges going to ask for an ex, an ex-husband, an ex-wife to provide information as part of the financial aid process? And Beth, to start off, I think that's a great question. It's a question that we, we get all the time. And to be honest, it really depends on you know, where your child's applying to college and what applications the college is looking for in order to apply for financial aid. Earlier, back when we started um, these segments, we talked about how to apply for financial aid and the primary application is the FAFSA, the free application mm-hmm. for federal student aid. And that's really only going to collect information from the custodial parent household. So to be honest with you, if you and your ex are living in separate residence, he or she's not going to be asked to provide any type of information. Now, earlier you mentioned the CSS profile. But again, mm-hmm. that CSS profile that's required by about 400 primarily private colleges it's only going to be collecting information also from the custodial parent in their household. Oh, okay. But now there's a smaller subset of colleges. There's about 250 private colleges that require the CSS profile that are also going to require a non-custodial parent to complete the non-custodial parent supplement. Gotcha. And they're going to be looking at the non-custodial parent's household as a potential source to help finance that, you know, your son or daughter's college education. Now, one thing that I often hear from families, you know, whether it's a custodial parent, whether it's a non-custodial parent, you know, is that other parent going to see the information that I'm providing? And that's a, you know, big concern. But I mm-hmm. want to reassure, you know, families out there that the processes are completely separate and you're not going to see what your ex is filling out and your ex is not also going to see what you're filling out. Some schools may also have their own institutional application. So they may have some questions that they want the non-custodial parent to complete or some information you need to get from them. But in order to really just sum this up, a vast majority of schools, they're not going to be looking for any information at all from the non-custodial parent. 
the sub-schools, primarily private colleges. I mentioned about 250 schools. Those, mm-hmm. those are the, really the schools that are, might want that information. Right. So for some people, this is not something they're ever going to have to worry about. And for others, maybe some of their schools are going to want this information and others will not. And actually, exactly. we're, um, we have that right in our own home right now. My husband's uh, son, who is a senior, has applied to college. And at some of the schools, they only require his mother's information because he primarily lives with her. And others, they require both his mother's information and my husband's information. Um, so it's been interesting to see that play out within our own home. So what happens if, uh, another question that can come up is your ex makes less money than you do. And so was, does it make sense for the parent who makes less money to be the one to file for financial aid for the student? And I love this question. And I would love if it was just as simple to say is, you know what? Great. <laughs> no problem. File with the parent that makes less, less money. And hopefully you're going to qualify for more financial aid at the end of the day. Because really, that's what their goal is. If right. the parent makes less money, let's file with that parent. But in all reality, the FAFSA provides some really clear instructions on what information should be used and who should be the parent filling out the application. Mm-hmm. So students are instructed to provide information for that parent where they live more than 50% of the time during the past or preceding 12 months, so mm-hmm. really during their senior year of high school. So if you've lived with one parent for 51% of the time and the other parent for 49% of the time, you, know, fi- you need to file with that parent where you lived with, you know, that you live 51% of the time. They're considered the custodial parent. So now, I have, you know, as I say, actually some friends, too, where they actually live down the street, you know, from one another. Mm-hmm. And the kids can go back and forth between each parent's house. And asking, that, asking them that question, they really do. The children really spend 50-50 at each parent's house. And there are many households that are like that. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a situation where you're like that, that the children really split their time equally, then... It's the parent who provides more than 50% of the support, and that's who the custodial parent is. Gotcha. Now, again, you, know, you have those families who say, you know what, we split everything 50-50, and we also split custody 50-50. And if you're in that case, then pick a parent and file with that parent for the next you know, four years. And it would probably make sense to file with that parent who has the lower income. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I want to indicate is you really also want to file with that parent for the next four years. Colleges don't want to see you filing with mom one year, dad one year, mom the next year, and dad the next year. So you okay. want to file with the same parent, you know, each year. Right. That will keep your financial aid in good shape all four years rather than – so if, you, if you're switching between parents then, because actually that dis- what you just described, where it's 50-50 right down the middle, it describes my uh, agreement with my ex-husband and our 10-year-old. He literally spends 50% with me, 50% with his father, and we split the support 50-50 right down the middle as well. So um, the advice there is really if we're going to go with his dad, then we're going to go with him for all four years of college. If we're going to go with me, then it should be me all four years of college. Exactly. And the other thing, Beth, that I also want to just you know, point out, something that you brought up, mm-hmm. is if you are the custodial parent and you're remarried, you also have to provide information for that step-parent, too. They're part of that family. Right. So, so that is a big question that, that a lot you know, of people have. About. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to talk over about. you, but, you know, do, does that, that new spouse then is, is expected to contribute for a child that is really not their child, technically? Well, 
they're expected to provide information, but the college can't force them mm-hmm. to actually pay. Of course. Colleges, you know, can't make it not... An, you pay, and they also can't pay, make a step-parent pay for college as long as the bill is getting paid. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but so it, it might where the decrease um, the amount of aid that you get if your new spouse maybe makes substantially more money or just makes a lot more money and therefore your household income is higher. Would that be accurate? Definitely, that could be accurate. And I mean, I've even had conversations with families who, you know, they're looking to get remarried and they're they're you know, looking at that question, my new, you know, potential spouse makes more money than I do. How is that going to affect what, you know, we're expected to pay for college? They could have degrees with, you know, they could have agreements with the non-custodial parent that they'll pay a certain percentage of college and they know this is going to change the family situation because that new potential step-parent, his or her income is substantially higher and can really Mm -hmm. change eligibility for financial aid. Right. So there's not necessarily much to get around that unless maybe it is to just not get married until after your kids are in college, I suppose. (laughs) That's a lot to imagine. Who made that decision? Yeah, really. See, that's amazing. But I mean, it's college is really expensive. And if you're, if you're just waiting four years, I suppose maybe you feel like that's not that long of a wait. Um, but that is an interesting thing, and I know people have a lot of questions about that. What about if your new spouse also has children, and maybe you have children about the same age, and so they're both going to be in college at the same time? Uh, do colleges take that into consideration? So, again, as we to say, it really depends. If both, in your, if both you and your spouse are going to have you know, multiple children in college at the same time. Now, if your stepchildren live with you more than 50% of the time, then, of course, you're going to include them in your household when you're applying for financial aid. However, as you, you know, however, you know, depending on what the situation is, let's say your ex has um, children and they live with their you know, other parent, whether that's you know, mom or dad, and then you have children living in your household. So when you're filing for financial aid, again, the children are reporting information for those parent or parents who are considered the custodial parents you know, in that situation. Mm-hmm. So you may not be able to include two in college, three in college, having more than one child in college at the same time. But gotcha. something else that I want to mention here is if that non-custodial parent is expected to pay or even paying for their other child who lives outside of your household, mm-hmm. then what I recommend is writing a separate letter to the financial aid office. This is an extenuating circumstance. There's nowhere you can really document this on the financial aid applications. So send a letter to the financial aid offices of the colleges that your child is applied to or maybe the the school that your child is going to be attending. Let them know that there's another child out there. You know, Mm -hmm. I have a stepchild, and we are paying X number of dollars, or we're expected to pay X number of dollars. And colleges aren't likely to, again, treat that you have two in college, but many colleges will use that information, remove the money that you're paying for his or her education from your available income to determine eligibility for your children who are going to college. So it's, you know, I was going to say it's confusing, but this is an appealable situation. This mm-hmm. is an extenuating situation where you want to let the college know that you're not seeing the whole picture of the family. 
Right. So you don't get caught in double jeopardy where you're being expected to pay for a child the colleges have no idea about and then also expected, but it looks like you have all this available income to pay for another child. So I think the point you made is a really good one about an appealable situation. And actually, um, Shannon Vasconcellos, who works for College Coach, uh, was on a couple of weeks ago when we talked about that question of appealing financial aid. And I think this is a great example where you want to make sure that the financial aid office has all the information that they can to make a really thoughtful decision. Um, so we have a few more things that we wanted to cover. And so we're going to go to break. And then, Beth, you're going to join me after the break. And we're, we'll maybe address a couple more questions. And then there are a question or two that came in um, while we were doing the show. So we'll get to that as well. Um, so stay tuned because we're going to be right back right after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. So it's that time in the show where we typically turn to your questions, but we also had a few left over that I really wanted to ask Beth from the segment we were doing right before the break. And so uh, I've had a f- situation with a few students that I've worked with where the the father or the mother is not really involved anymore. And to the point where in some cases, 
they don't even know where they are. So their whereabouts are unknown or they maybe know where they are, but they refuse to be involved in any way. Uh, and so that is sort of a conversation for another day about how that's not so great. But um, the reality is that in, in that moment, it doesn't really matter how good or bad that situation is. They are faced with some documentation that they need to provide. Um, and they're not sure how to provide it. So what do you do if you don't have any contact with your ex and you can't get the information this, the school is requesting? So in my experience, because again, I worked at, you know, as you mentioned, Northeastern, and mm-hmm. we required the non-custodial uh, parent supplement to be completed. Uh, most schools have a process in place where families can contact the college to let them know that, again, there's an extenuating situation. They can't necessarily get that information from the non-custodial non-custodial parent. And in my experience, you know, some reasons that this information would be waived is the parents living outside of the U.S., so in another country. Um, no contact, no where, you know, no idea whereabouts. Detrimental mm-hmm. relationship with the, with the child or even, you know, just a custodial parent household or even our incarceration. So, you know, I've seen, you know, all of these different things in my, you know, years in uh, financial aid. Mm-hmm. But really, if you're in one of these situations, the best thing is to contact the financial aid office. Let them know what's going on. See what their process is to get that, you know, to get that information or that documentation waived from the non-custodial uh, parent so it's not going to hold up the financial aid process. And, you know, the procedure will be typically entail, you know, you're writing a letter to the financial aid office explaining what the situation is. Some schools may require additional documentation. They might ask for some type of letter from the student, maybe another family member explaining the situation. And some schools will even go as far as asking for third-party verification, mm-hmm. asking for explanation of lack of relationship, maybe court documentation, or a letter from someone outside of the family, counselor, priest, or somebody else who can explain the situation to the college. But again, you know, colleges really want to do what's best for the family, and they're going to, you know, take this very, very seriously and look at the situation and hopefully, you know, be able to work with you that they can get this document waived that is not going to be an added stress to, you know, get a financial aid package from that college. Right, right. I know that I've had a few families who've had to do that, and the process has been fairly extensive, and it hasn't always been granted, but I, I do know that the experience has been that the colleges, most of them anyway, are at least willing to have the conversation um, with the parent. And so my takeaway from a lot of this or a lot of what we've been talking about is if you have an unusual situation or there's information you have and there's no, it's not being asked for anywhere. So there's, like you said, they don't ask this question on the, on the profile or on some of the documents that they're asking for. Right. The, the thing to do is really reach out and have a conversation and don't be afraid to pick up the phone or send a letter or do both. Um, in or, that right, situation. Or, or not do anything, you know, say, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we'll just go away because not turning in that application or that document could be more harmful to getting financial aid than calling and explaining the situation and working to get it waived. Right. There's never any harm in having a conversation, uh, provided you can be calm and collected while you're having it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I would say, I guess I should back off the never any harm, but for the most part, I think you're probably okay. Uh, So one other question I wanted to tackle around this um, would be, what if the the ex is involved um, and 
you have a relationship, the ex has a relationship with the kids, but isn't willing to contribute to the student's education, uh, do you still have to provide their information? I think I know the answer, but I'd love to hear the expert opinion on this one. And Beth, unfortunately, yes, you do have to actually yeah. provide the information, or the non-custodial has to provide the information. Willingness to pay doesn't constitute ability to pay, mm-hmm. and that's really the same for you know the custodial parent, too. Colleges can't force you as a custodial parent to pay. They can't force the non-custodial parent to pay. And, you know, in my, you know, in my experience, letting, you know, I was going to say, maybe letting the non-custodial parent know that, that at the end of the day, that they can't make him pay or her pay, you know, maybe they're going to be a little bit more at ease at providing this information, you know, mm-hmm. to the college. But unless there's an extenuating circumstance, you know, really, at the end of the day, yes, that document is going to be uh, expected by the college as part of the financial aid application. Right. And like you say, they can't force that parent to pay, but the package will generally include an expectation that they're going to contribute a certain amount. And then I guess at that point, the family has to decide how they're going to come up with that money if that parent isn't willing to to give it, Um, which is too bad and unfortunate. But um, it is those are the rules. And that's how you can offer financial aid to more students by having a parental expectation and applying it equally. Um, Right. And. Yeah. And I dealt with that a lot of the time. I was to say, you know, that I'd have the custodial parents sitting in my office and saying, you know, how do we come up with this and non-custodial parents not paying their share? Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the, you know, the college doesn't have any type of, you know, power that they can make anybody pay, you know, the bill. Right. That ultimately has to get paid for the student to continue. Yep. All right. So we did have a question come in while um, while we were talking earlier in the show around um, the segment I did with Becky, and that was about those admit student admit receptions. And actually, a parent was asking, are they student admit receptions or are they really for the whole family? And so... Um, I think you might have heard Becky say that you could split up when you're there and mom can go to one session, the student can go to another. And my take on those admit receptions, they really are for the whole family. Uh, they often will have special parent sessions designed specifically, as the name would suggest, for parents and special students um, things that they're doing on campus. And then there are times when the whole family is meant to be together and touring the campus together. I think oftentimes it's not just about the student feeling comfortable with the campus, but it's also the parent feeling comfortable with the campus. And so for that reason, I do think if at least one parent can go along, that can be a really good way for the parent to get a better look at the school and feel better about it as well. Certainly parents don't have to attend, but uh, they really are for everyone if, if you're up for it. Um, Beth, we also had another question that came in related to what you and I were talking about, and I think we just about have time for this one, uh, and that is that child support is ending um, when this when my son graduates from high school, and I'm no longer going to have that money for college. And um, if you can let us know fairly quickly, how can that person let the colleges know about that? And again, I'm going to, you know, Beth, I'm going to go back to the segment that was done on, you know, appealable situations that Shannon did mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. You know, this is something that you want to let the college know in a letter explaining that child support's ending when my son or daughter turns 18 or graduates high school. You know, what did you receive year to date? Because, again, colleges are looking at prior year information. So let's say they graduate in June. You receive child support from January through June, letting the school know that. And, again, they can remove that that income, quote-unquote income, 
that mm-hmm. she's been receiving from child support from the calculation, you know, going forward to calculate that family's ability to pay. Now, one other thing I just want to mention there, if we have a minute, is if you have multiple children getting child support, is don't forget about the support you're getting for them, too, because that's reported. And if it's just not going away but just decreasing, let the college know about the decrease, not necessarily that it's just you know, going away completely. Gotcha. Thank you so much, Beth. And thanks to all my guests this week. Next next week's episode of Getting In is really a must-listen. I think every week is a must-listen, of course, but you want to tell your friends and family. Greg Grauman, who's the Assistant Vice Provost of Undergraduate Admissions at American University, is going to join us to talk about what test optional really means at the institutions that practice it. Um, and for those of you getting waitlist offers, um, my colleague Kenan Dix is going to stop by to talk to me about what this means, what your chances are of getting off the waitlist, maybe some tips about how you can improve your chances, your odds. Um, And finally, we're going to talk to uh, college finance expert and colleague Jean Mahan, who's going to talk tips about reducing college costs once you're enrolled, including some tax breaks you may not know about. Uh, In our final segment, we're going to take your questions like we always do. You can send them in to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com, but we'd also love it if you would call us during the show at 866-472-5788. We're here every Thursday at 4 Eastern, 1 Pacific. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm